Today we return to our list of names. Uh, I know for some of you thinking, oh, this is riveting, but uh, it is, it is because it is God's word and all of God's word, even the genealogy of Esau and even this list of names at the end of Romans 16 or in Romans 16 is edifying for us because it was given to us, given to us as a gift from the Lord. So think about whatever you got for Christmas this year from anyone. We have our, our, most of the kids with us this morning. So think about all the things that you got for Christmas from grandparents, and, and they really do load it on, and parents and, and others. And all of those are really uh, nothing compared to even these words that you're going to hear today. A lot of funny names, strange names for you kids, names that you can spend the rest of the day repeating uh, and hopefully uh, uh, even honor these people by thinking of their names, these brothers and sisters in Christ. But we return today to this list of names in Romans 16. And the title for the sermon this morning is The Apostles' Greetings, Part 2. So last week was Part 1, and this week is Part 2. Paul is wrapping up his letter by greeting those he knows among the Roman Christians. And so scholars debate uh, how many of these people Paul actually knows, all the way from he knows all of these people. These are the people he's greeting because he knows them. These are the ones he knows in the Roman church. Uh, to, well, we know he knows these, but these it's not so clear. He might just be greeting people he has heard of. It seems to me that we, by default, go with Paul knows these people. He's greeting the people there in Rome whom he knows. Remember, Paul is interested in their support to further the mission in Spain. That's the big idea for Paul. That is what Paul is about. He wants to continue to preach the gospel. Paul's not interested in merely hanging out with other believers. Paul's not interested in uh, going to Rome and just spending some time sort of walking the forum uh, on a nice cool day and just sort of taking in uh, the imperial capital, the city. He's not interested in doing those sorts of things. Paul has one desire and that is to preach Christ and him crucified. And he wants to preach Christ and him crucified to the un. Believers in Spain, to the Gentiles who have not heard the name of Christ, who have not bowed to Christ, where the name of Christ is not known. That is what Paul is about. And he wants to enlist the Romans in this effort to support this mission. To this end, he has already given them a clear gospel presentation. Uh, as I've said before, it's, it's neat to see that the most robust explanation of the gospel that we find in the New Testament is bent entirely towards greater mission work, is bent entirely towards bringing the gospel to further places. It's not just Paul sitting down, deciding, I think I want to make it all clear and, and just sort of lay it out so that this is a sort of a last will and testament of the gospel I preach for ages to come. Paul's heart is burning with missionary zeal. That's why he writes every word of Romans. So don't just sit around dissecting Romans as a theological treatise. Uh, do Romans, live Romans, and live the intent of Romans through spreading Christ's gospel. So Paul has already given them this clear gospel presentation. He's given them an explanation of why he has yet to visit them. You know, uh, maybe they think, Paul doesn't care about us. You know, we're largely a Gentile church and Paul hasn't been here all these years and the apostle to the Gentiles has not come to Rome to spend time with us, to, to minister among us and to do gospel work here. And so Paul explains why he has not done that yet and, and along with that, he tells them of his great desire to do that, that he has been yearning, longing to do that for some time. And then he gives them a description of his travel plans. So explanation of his gospel, explanation of why he hasn't come, and then an explanation of his travel plans, what he is going to do in the future, what he plans to do uh, by God's will, and that is to come to them and be helped by them on his mission to Spain. So he's already done all of this. Now, beginning in verse three of chapter 16, he gives them a list of names. 
And you ask the question, well, how does that relate to what he has already done? Well, he is listing his supporters in Rome. We talked about this in group this week. It was, it was uh, said, you know, Paul is, is name dropping. And, you know, we could, we could think of it in that way. And it, there is a sense in which that's the case. But Paul is mentioning to the Roman believers, those believers in Rome who already support his mission who already support the gospel he preaches, who are already a part of what he himself is about. You know, Paul was a controversial figure. We see this when he goes to Jerusalem. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He goes to Jerusalem, and the, the, the Jews there, the unbelieving Jews, are doing everything they can to murder him. Everything they can. 40 people take a vow that they will not eat until Paul is dead. They hate Paul. They, Paul in particular, all the Jesus followers, all those of the way, all the Christians, they do not like. But Paul is particularly disgusting and heinous to them. They want to take his life. And beyond that, the believers in Jerusalem and throughout who are Jewish have these kind of concerns about Paul. Concerns about Paul's relation to his heritage, to the Jewish customs, how it is he's preaching to the Gentiles and what he's saying to the Gentiles and what that means for the Jewish people. And James refers to that uh, in the book of Acts as when Paul comes to deliver the collection. So it, it really is true that Paul is a controversial figure. He's been controversial for 2,000 years and that began at the very beginning. And Paul wants to gain support so that he might preach Christ. Paul's not interested in uh, defending himself. He's not interested in making sure he has a great reputation. He's interested in Jesus Christ being exalted among the nations. And that's why he wrote Romans. And that's why, in part, he gives this long list of names of Christians there in Rome who support him. Last week in part one, we covered Paul's commendation of Phoebe and his greeting of the married couple Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, and that was in verses one to five. You guys can go ahead and put up the slide for the uh, points today. So last week, we covered these first two points, Phoebe of Cancreae, verses one to two, and then Prisca and Aquila, verses three to five. So let me just say a couple of words to orient us today on those individuals. First, Phoebe. Paul is writing in Corinth, and there is a wealthy benefactor named Phoebe who is part of the church at Kincrai. Now, the church at Kincrai, or Kincrai, is about eight miles away from Corinth where Paul is writing. It's a port city. For whatever reason, this lady, Phoebe, is going to Rome. And Paul sends her with his letter and provides a little reference note. As I said last week, he provides a little endorsement of Phoebe at the end of his letter to the Romans. Little reference note. She is a true and helpful servant of her church, but also of many others, including Paul himself. She's been helpful all the way around. She's been serving within her local body, her local church there in Kinkrei, and she's been helping the missionary endeavors of Paul and then many others who are here unnamed. And Paul wants the Roman believers to welcome her and to provide whatever assistance she may need, whatever it is that she needs uh, for her own personal needs as she's there traveling to Rome, or uh, maybe protection or, or hospitality, housing, food, whatever it is that she may need, and then also anything that she might need with regard to the delivering of Paul's letter. And then we looked at Prisca and Aquila. They have ministered alongside of Paul. They've had a front row seat to his ministry. They've been his fellow workers on the mission field, fellow missionaries of the apostle. They met Paul in Corinth as a fellow tent maker. They're, they're, they're tent makers. Paul is a tent maker. And they are fellow Jewish Christians. They ministered with him in Ephesus and even risked their lives for Paul. So who knows where and when and how many times they risked their lives for Paul, but they love Paul enough to put their very own necks, as Paul puts it, their very own lives on the line to rescue him out of danger, to see to it that he lives 
on. And now, this couple, Prisca and Aquila, is back in Rome, where they were before the emperor Claudius kicked all of the Jews out of the city in AD 49. Can you imagine that? We get a reference to that in Acts 18. We get a reference to that by the Roman historian Suetonius, that literally the, the Roman emperor Claudius just kicks all the Jews out. Now, who knows how many that really meant left the city, and it was uh, enticed, uh, as we learned from Suetonius, it was enticed over a, a controversy over Christus. It was, it was a controversy probably having to do with Christ, and so what did the emperor do? He just booted the Jews out in mass number, and Prisca and Aquila are part of this uh, expulsion, and they have now come back to Rome. They have a church that meets in their house. And they are probably some of Paul's biggest supporters. So that's why he mentions them first. He, he gives the, the most verbiage to greeting them and to uh, describing them. And he puts them at the head of the list. These are probably some of the most influential Christians in the, the collective Roman church. They, they have a, a church that meets in their house. And probably among all the believers there in Rome know Paul the best. And so Paul mentions them. But Paul doesn't just want to su want support from this couple or from the church that meets in their house. No, Paul wants unity among the Roman believers as a whole. He wants them to have unity among themselves. He could have just written to Prisca and Aquila, right? We get the letter of Philemon. It's a personal letter. He, he could have just written to uh, Prisca and Aquila said, hey, I'm going to dock in at your house, church, and uh, then I'm going to get a little bit of support for my mission to Spain. That's not what Paul does. Paul is interested in the unity of all of the believers in the city of Rome, and also unity in their support of the apostolic mission to the Gentiles. So he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with Prisca and Aquila. He continues to greet other believers, many believers, whom he knows in Rome. And so that leads us up to where we are today. Today we're going to look at the rest of this section, verses 5 to 15, and then verse 16. So two things to occupy our attention today up here on the screen. Particular believers that he mentions there in verses 5 to 15, and then finally the public greetings that are offered there in verse 16. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at these names and we're going to see what the Lord, what implications there are coming out of these names that we can understand why Paul is doing this, what Paul is saying, and then we can understand what does this mean for us? What, what are we to take away from this list of individuals at the end of Paul's most famous letter? So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to read chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. This is God's word. It is holy. It is perfect and profitable for his people. And it has power, power to work in each of us today by the Holy Spirit. Do we believe that as we read? Verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house, Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my, kinsmen, greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family 
of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trufina and Trufosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asuncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. We're here uh, to worship God, and part of the way we do that is by being instructed in his word, which has been going on since the beginning of the Christian church. I'll refer later to Justin Martyr, and he gives us insight in the second century to the way Christians worshiped, and that was one of the things that Christians did. They would read the text of God's word and explain it, and so we pray that the Lord would teach us today during this time. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise. We give you thanks. Father, we are humbled by the fact that we're here right now to be with your people. Lord, what a gift, what a blessing. What a blessing to be able to have just one page of your word, even if it was this last page of Romans, to be able to to draw strength and to draw comfort and reproof, reminders and charges, to, to draw all of these things out of your word here just in this page of scripture. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. We thank you that we are recipients today of that very work. We pray, God, that we would be taught by the Apostle now as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these words. Lord, we pray that we would be taught in accordance with your perfect will, that we would walk away from these words this morning, understanding more of who you are, what your purposes are, and what it means to follow you, what it means to, as we read so many times in Genesis, to walk with God. Father, help us to walk with you. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see amidst all of the details what are the main things we need to get from this passage. We pray that our hearts would be kindled with fresh zeal because of our time here today. We thank you for what we've already heard, what we've already sung, what we've already said. Father, what a blessing to be together in a worship service with your people. Be with us now, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Illuminate your word and show us how we are to live for King Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So here we are at particular believers. Now we've already seen some particular believers, but uh, as, I, as I said, Prisca and Aquila kind of deserve their own special mention there at the beginning, given the background there between uh, them and the apostle. So in addition to Prisca and Aquila, Verses 5 to 15 gives us a list of 24 names. It's incredible. That's a lot of people here mentioned. 24 names and then other individuals who are not named, like the mother of Rufus or the sister of Nereus. 24 named people and then others. What do we do with all of these names? What does this list tell us? It is interesting that there have been some scholars who have uh, done uh, quite extensive treatments on this passage because of its historical value uh, for helping us understand a lot about what's going on in the Roman Empire. I mean, this is a good, if you were a Roman historian, this, this here would be a, a nice piece of historical data, be a nice piece of historical evidence uh, we, of course, Christian scholars want to understand more about the makeup of the early church, and so this becomes very important for that. But what's interesting is when you read some of these things, it, 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 there's a lot of sort of conjecture. You know, is it, well, we think this, we think that, this person may be referring to this well-known person, this person may just be a, a basic slave name, or, or what's going on here with the relation between these individuals. And so there's a lot of debate on this, but there is much that we can glean from this, list. What are we to do with it? 
Well, we have to begin and really center everything on one giant observation. One giant observation that is like an umbrella over all of our smaller observations. So I want to keep our eyes on the giant observation, and then we can sort of fold into that lots of other little things that we see along the way. And this one giant observation is really two observations seen side by side. So one giant observation broken into two seen side by side. On the one side, we see many differences. Many differences. And on the other side, we see one great unifier. So that's the big giant observation. Many differences, one great unifier. So first, let's look at the differences. Now, I could spend a lot of time here. Uh, Many of you are thinking, no, 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 don't do that. Uh, But I could spend a lot of time, I could have broken this out, you know, we could do part three, we come back next week, be right here with Nereus and and so forth. Uh, But I'm, I'm not going to do that. What I want to do is just paint the picture of diversity with a broad brush. So help us to walk away from this and say, okay, it's clear that there's a lot of diversity here. And then as we come to the unifier, the second part of this observation, which we'll come to in a moment. So let's look at this diversity. Here we have Gentiles and Jews, the most basic division, we could say, the most basic uh, thing coming out of Romans that we've seen the differences among individuals, the Jew and Gentile distinction. We have Gentiles and Paul's kinsmen, as he refers to here. Jews, other Jews, like Andronicus and Junian, Herodian, and of course Prisca and Aquila, though not noted as fellow Jews. So probably some other Jews here besides those. Maybe Mary is a Jew, although that could, that could be a Latin name, could be a, a Jewish name. It's unclear, but Mary might be a Jew. There might be others among them. But Paul here identifies, we would assume, most of the Jewish people among those in this list as his fellow kinsmen. And among all these individuals, we get both Greek and Latin names. So even within the, the Gentiles, we see the distinction in Jews who are named with Greek names. Uh, these are Jews in the dispersion. They've been around the Mediterranean world. And so we have different kinds of individuals here, probably Palestinian Jews and diaspora Jews. We got Greeks and, and we got Latins. We got Romans, people who've just always lived in Italy, people who come from other parts of the Mediterranean world. This is quite diverse. It is ethnic, racial, and national diversity, all brought together, as we can see so clearly in this list of names. So we have that. We have slaves, freed people, and those who are probably citizens of Rome. So for example... We find many names associated with slaves or former slaves. And it's interesting historically that you can associate names with Roman slavery because there there, there were certain names that were common among slaves. And, And if there's a name out there that's common among slaves and you're a Roman citizen or sort of higher up in Roman society, that's not the name you're gonna go to. That's not where you're gonna, that's as you're flipping through the baby names book, that's not where your eyes are going to land, And so uh, it, it is from these names possible to extract the, the, the kinds of folks that are mentioned here. For example, uh, names associated with slaves or former slaves. We have possibly Junia, Ampliatus, Trufosa, Trufina, Stachus, the believers in the households of Aristobulus and Narcissus, Herodian, Persis, Rufus, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and Olympus. Anyone else want to come up here and go through all of that? So there you go. I wanted to give them to you. Um, those are names that are, are associated with slaves or freed people. And this is, this is really interesting how many are here. Aristobulus and Narcissus are likely the names of unbelieving heads of households. So those who are greeted are probably slaves in their households. When he says family, literally in the text it's just of Aristobulus, 
or of Narcissus. And so what we have pictured for us here is similar to what Paul writes elsewhere in Colossians and Ephesians when he gives instruction to the servants of the masters and how they are to act. These are probably servants in the households of Aristobulus and Narcissus who were not believers. And that is why Paul says, greet those in the household of these individuals. So let's just kind of pause for a second as we look, we're considering these differences. What does this remind us of? Well, I think it reminds us of Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brothers. You remember that? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 1 is illustrated by these names, by these names in Romans 16, where as I just read you that long list, that long list, the majority of these people have no status. They are not high individuals on the socioeconomic scale. In the class structure of ancient Roman society, these people are at the bottom. They're exactly what Paul means in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it's important for us to see that the makeup of the early church was by God's design. I've recently been reading some sermons by uh, the church father, Augustine, and one of the things he keeps saying, it's very interesting, is the, the importance of humility. It's just such a big idea for him. And he constantly is going back to the fact that as Christians, we bear this identity of humility because we are people of the cross. We are people of the crucified Savior. Of course it is this way. Our Redeemer, the one who came into the world, left glory, became man, born in the most humble of circumstances, raised in the most humble of circumstances, pulling together disciples from the most humble of circumstances, and dying in the most humiliating way possible on a Roman cross. So of course it would be this way as God brings together the peoples in the early church, holding up this great and glorious truth of humility. Uh, things like this just stamp out human pride. They, they take human pride, throw it on the ground, and trample it over and over and over again. And so if you've come here this morning puffed up, sure of yourself, patting yourself on the back, self-righteous in your dealings with others, just consider the way of the cross. Consider this identity of humility evidenced by the very makeup of the early Christian church. As already indicated, as we move on, it appears that we have people who have traveled extensively throughout the empire and others who have been settled as members of Roman households, maybe people who have been living in Rome within a household as slaves. They've never left. They grew up there. And they've been there all along. And we know, of course, we have people who've traveled all over the place, as we talked earlier about Prisca and Aquila. We have men, women, family members, married couples. So, for example, nine women are mentioned. And the majority of them referred to as, as co-laborers, as those who've worked hard in the Lord. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I mean, here we have in ancient society, ancient Roman society, this, this group, think about it from an, an outsider looking in, this group, of this, this religious group, this religious society to Romans and Greeks, maybe some sort of mystery religion or whatever, whatever it is to their on looking, to their eyes as they look in, 
It, it would have been an embarrassment to have so many women mentioned as key players. And I don't mean pastors and elders, uh, because I think the, the New Testament is clear on that. First Timothy chapter two, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to have authority or to teach or have authority over men. Uh, that's clear from the scriptures. But nonetheless, what we find is the busyness, the energy, the zeal, the significance of women in the early church. We talked about that quite a bit last week. There's all sorts of, of people represented here, and we find women, Prisca, Mary, Junia, Trufina, Trufosa, Persis, Rufus's mother, Julia, and Nereus's sister. These are the women mentioned in this list. Nine of them, one-third or more than one-third. We have people who go back to the very early days of the church and others who have probably come to faith more recently. So these are old-timers. And it's clear you have different ages, but people who go back to the early days of the Christian movement, of the Jesus movement, probably some who were there at the very beginning. Maybe they were at Pentecost when Peter was preaching and they were among those who were converted and they've been back, they've been in Rome. They're part of the early seed that God sowed there in Rome. So, for example, Andronicus and Junia were in Christ before Paul. That's going back a long way. He, he, takes a, he makes mention of that, the fact that this, this couple, Andronicus and Junia, were in Christ before Paul. Now, there's a lot of debate over Andronicus and Junia. It, it seems, though, as, as most scholars argue, that Junia is a feminine name, not a masculine name, because if it is a masculine name, it would be a shortened form of Junianus, which, would, which does not appear anywhere in Greek literature. And so the evidence suggests that Junia is a female name and that Andronicus and Junia are probably a married couple. Now the controversy begins to arise when we look at who these people are. Paul either describes them as well known to the apostles, which is what we have in the ESV, or outstanding among the apostles. And so those who would advocate for full participation in all areas of ministry, would, would advocate for women pastors and so forth, would point to a text like this and would say, look, Junia is a female, which I think is clear from the text, and she is also among the apostles. So they want to point to a text like this and say that this is a justification for having women Pastors. Well, it's difficult to determine which of these is the case. Are they outstanding among the apostles or well-known to the apostles? If well-known to the apostles, then it may be going back to the ministry in the sight of the apostles in Jerusalem. And it does say here that they were in Christ before Paul. So you gotta put these bits together. You gotta put the, the little bits of information together to help them understand one another. And so what we find here is that they are in Christ prior to Paul, which puts them at a very early stage in the growth of the early church. It puts them there, possibly, probably in Jerusalem among the likes of Peter, John, and James, and so forth. So the context suggests that well-known to the apostles, is what is in view. The Greek, as it's worded, leans slightly in the other direction that they are referred to as those among the apostles. But even if that's the case, it's not a problem because Paul would not be here calling them apostles in the capital A sense, whether we're talking about the 12 or James, Paul, and Barnabas on the next level down, or well, you know, not really on the next level down, but on those capital A apostles. But Paul would be referring to small A apostles, messengers, missionaries, just as he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23 where he refers to the messengers of the churches or the apostles of the churches. To be a lowercase a apostle in the New Testament period simply meant to be one sent out by the churches. It simply meant to send out to those on the mission field. And so either way, the significance is not, not really there that it gets blown out of proportion. But I thought it at least worthwhile to talk about it. I'll move on. So, 
Andronicus and Junia were in Christ before Paul. They've been there for a while. What about Rufus? This is very interesting. Rufus is mentioned in verse 13. He is probably the son of Simon of Kurene. Remember, the one who carried Jesus' cross. That's amazing. I remember when I first learned this years ago, I remember first seeing this and thinking, that is amazing. That's fascinating to me. Mark 15, 21 says this. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Kurene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, the other gospels don't mention Alexander and Rufus. They just say that this Simon, this man, helped carry the cross. Why is it that Mark mentions Alexander and Rufus? Rufus. Well, if you look at early church history, Mark was probably written in Rome. As the early church father said, it was, it was given by Peter and dictated by Mark, John Mark, in Rome. And so when you put these pieces together, it is probably the case that when Mark writes this, he wants his readers in Rome to know, oh, that's, that's Alexander and Rufus's dad. Alexander and Rufus that you guys know. The Alexander and Rufus that is here among us, worshiping Christ. And so I think it is quite probable that when Paul greets Rufus, he is greeting one of the two sons of the man who carried the Lord Jesus' cross. It's just really fascinating. And then, of course, we get Epinatus, the first one mentioned in verse 5. This was Paul's first convert to Christ in Asia. So why do I go through these, Epinatus and Rufus, Andronicus and Junia? Because these are people who reflect a very early stage in the Jesus movement. These are people who've been around for a little while. But not everyone there would fit into this category. We have these differences. Back to the main idea that I'm trying to get at. We have these Differences. We have at least five different house churches. Now, how hard is it for people to get along in one church? We all know that. If you've grown up in church, I mean, let's just be honest and real. It's, it's tough. It's tough. That's why there's so many church splits, unfortunately. I grew up Baptist, and I think that might be one of the hallmarks of Baptists, is splitting, church splits, just split. You, it's almost like you have to get to a certain, you get to a certain point and everyone just looks around at each other and says, well, we gotta split this thing up. It's sad. But all of these different churches. And so it's difficult within one church to, to get along, but how much more for everyone within these churches getting along with one another in separate churches? How many more differences might emerge among these separate house churches that are all part of this capital R, Roman church there in, or capital C, Roman church there in the city. Well, we have five, at least five churches here mentioned. Verse five, the church that meets in Prisca and Aquila's house. Verse 10, the household of Aristobulus. Verse 11, the household of Narcissus. Verse 14, Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. And then verse 15, Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. These are at least five different assemblies. These are five different gatherings. And as commentators have noted, there may be others. When you look at all of these names and how they relate to one another, there, there are at least five churches represented here in this list. Interestingly, two well-known men, Aristobulus, the grandson of Herod the Great, and Narcissus were both closely connected to the emperor Claudius. They were both dead by the time Romans was written. And so these households were probably part of the imperial household. Aristobulus and Narcissus Probably households that have been folded into Caesar's household. And so we get Paul writing to Philippi when he is in Rome, chapter 4, verse 22, and he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So what we, we need to put these things together. It's amazing when we see how these little bits of the New Testament fit together. Paul is there writing, and he's probably referring to some of these people. 
whom he lists at the end of Romans. So what does this tell us? The gospel had already infiltrated the center of the Roman world. You know, we take that for granted, but that is truly amazing. It is truly breathtaking to consider that in A.D. 57, 23, 4 years after Christ was crucified, that there are believers in this crucified Messiah. There are believers in this one who was given the most heinous of punishments by the Roman authorities, crucified between two thieves. This thing, not only did it not die out in Judea, not only did it spread all over the Mediterranean world, but there are believers in the capital, in the household of the emperor in 57. And not just like a guy or a lady. There are numerous individuals in the household of Caesar who bear the name of Christ, who have as their desire to bring Christ and him crucified to other people. It should not surprise us that Christianity took over the Roman Empire. It shouldn't surprise us that by the time we get to the early 300s, we even have a Roman emperor, whether legitimately or not, saying, Constantine, saying that he was now Christian. Christ conquered Rome. He conquered Rome with his glorious gospel. And we see the early days of that right here in these very names. So now for the other side. Remember I told you there's one giant observation with two sides. One side of that is the great diversity. One side of that are all the differences. And I could go on and on about those things we just looked at but, and other differences, but that just kind of outlines it for you. On one side, there are all these differences. On the other side, there is one great unifier. And it is built into the language of the text from beginning to end. If we go back to verse 3 with Prisca and Aquila, we find nine instances, nine instances where Paul uses the language of in Christ or in the Lord. Nine times. It's amazing. It's almost as though Paul intentionally made these words in Christ or in the Lord the very skeletal structure of all of these names. In Christ, in the Lord, is the skeletal structure of Paul's greetings. This begins in verse 3 with, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And it goes all the way up to verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. So what does this tell us? Why have I spent all this time going into the differences reflected in these names. And then now we come in, all the differences in view and many more which we could talk about, and we just see this one unifier in Christ Jesus, in Christ, in the Lord. It tells us this, Christ himself is what glues and holds us together, period, Christ is the unifier. It is not a set of ideas. It is not an ideology. It is not where we're from or what we like or what we think is a good course or whatever. It's not our politics. It's not how we organize our family life. It's not whether we come from the south or the north or California. It is none of these things. Christ himself is who glues us together. He holds us together. And this in Christness, this in the Lordness acts as the glue that holds all of these names together. Imagine how many differences there would have been among these believers. We are so silly to think that this is a divided age. This is a divided age among Christians. It's so divided. We, we just, oh man, we just can't get along. This is so silly. It's so trivial. It's so foolish. It's so focused on us and our own time. 
Christians have had differences and difficulties since the beginning. Christians have had diversity from the very earliest days. Read Acts 6. This has always been the case. To let these differences divide us where they are not truly about the Lord Jesus Christ is folly and it is the work of the devil. It is not the work of King Jesus. It is not the work of the Christ who has poured the love of God into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is not the work of the Christ who in the farewell discourse told his disciples above all other things, love one another. The greatest message that stands out or one of two or three that stands out in 1 John is the love between brothers. And of course, we recognize as Christians that this must be unity around Christ. That is the biblical Christ. And that is therefore the authority of Scripture which bears witness to Christ. How do we bow to Christ when we bow to his word? Where do we know about this Christ but from his word? So there can't be unity with those who reject the word of God. But with those who do, who love the gospel, who center on Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is of the flesh. It is wisdom not from above, but from demons, as James said, that rips the church apart. Listen to the way we are unified through this person. He himself is our unity. We are his body. In addition to this one great unifier, we find, we find repeated ideas that grow out of it. So quickly, being beloved, beloved, my beloved, Epinatus, Ampliatus, Stachus, Persis, they are referred to as beloved. They are loved in Christ. It's interesting, with the others, he says, my beloved, but when he comes to Persis, he says, the beloved. It's almost as though Paul wants to be careful there. He wants to make clear, this is a female he's talking about. He wants to be clear that she is also beloved, but he doesn't want to give any kind of stumbling block there. Loved in Christ, that's who we are. We are the beloved in Christ, and we are to one another the beloved. Being fellow workers or hard workers in the gospel, a major theme throughout these verses, Mary, Urbanus, Tryphina, Trufosa, and Persis, unity in a common goal of spreading Christ and him crucified. We are to be hard workers. You know, divisions within the church typically erupt where there is idleness. Where there's idleness. People just sitting around, bored, nothing to do. So they gotta create a controversy or two. And that's fun, it's fun. Think about how you feel the next time you're talking about a controversy and, and you, know, you, you got someone who agrees with you and you're talking about someone who disagrees with you or the view you don't like. Just think about what's going on in your soul. Just think about how that feels. Oh, our flesh loves that sort of thing. We love that sort of thing. We should be busy with Christ and him crucified. We should be busy making this gospel known, not sitting around idle, creating controversies. We also find the language of approved in Christ and chosen in the Lord. The language of our identity in Christ, this is my point, the language of our identity in Christ is all over this greeting. It's just everywhere. It's sprinkled on top, it's in the middle, it's underneath, and it's the skeletal structure that binds it all together. This is who we are. Christ is the center for his people. And nothing can ever take his place. Are you zealous for that? Are you zealous that nothing would take Christ's place? There is much more that could be said about these names, but I think we'll have to stop at this point because I want to make room for the last verse, verse 16. So let's go finally to public greetings, verse 16, as we finish up this morning. Look at this verse, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Here, Paul brings his greetings to a close with more general or universal language. Here, Paul, it's like Paul zooms out. 
that before he's down in the weeds, he's with the people he knows, and he's got specific names, many of them. Now he zooms out. This is more general. He's listed many people. He's included little notes of encouragement and commendation throughout. But here it's interesting. Paul moves back to the place of instructor. He puts his instructor hat back on. Do you notice that? He gives them instructions. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This language of greet one another is similar to what we found in chapters 14 and 15. Remember Paul's great burden was that believers in the midst of their differences would welcome one another. Welcome one another. Repeat it throughout. Welcome one another. And here we get similar language to, to greet one another. What does this tell us? With all the names he's just, just mentioned, think about this for a moment. With all the names that Paul has just mentioned, he has provided an example for them. Think about it. He does something and then he tells them to do it. Paul has provided an example of what he calls for in chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. If you want, you could put a verse over chapter 16, verses 1 to 16, and it would be Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Paul is loving one another with brotherly affection. He is outdoing one another in showing honor. All these things he says about these people. He's honoring them. He's commending them. He's encouraging them. He's lifting them up. And he's embracing them warmly with his words. Whatever differences they may have, the, the apostle is calling the believers in Rome across the house churches, across all this diversity, he is calling them to greet one another as he has just greeted them with all the warmth and familial affection of the family of God. But he doesn't just say greet one another. He says do it with a holy kiss. We did not have that as a part of our service uh, so far this morning. We, I'm not going to do it after this. It's not something you typically see, especially these days. It's not something that you typically see. So what is going on here to greet them with a holy kiss? Well, this was at that time a tangible, visible expression of Christian love in the early church. Paul mentions here and in other letters, he mentions this kiss, this holy kiss here and in other letters, but it is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14. Greet one another with the kiss of love. That's the way Peter refers to it, as the kiss of love. So Paul calls it a holy kiss, drawing attention to the fact that there is absolutely nothing erotic or sexual about it. And, and that was important because you, you imagine, you know, we hear stories and stuff, things, things that develop within churches among Christians. Paul wants to make very clear, this is a holy kiss, this is in the Lord kiss. This is a kiss that has only in view fellowship in Christ. It's holy. And Peter calls it the kiss of love, reminding his readers that it is an expression of the love that God has given us for one another. We also see it mentioned in the second century. I said this earlier referring to Justin Martyr. I mentioned him. This is what he describes in the middle of the second century. Have you ever wondered, maybe not, maybe you're not really a history person. I've always been a history person since I was a little kid. And so it fascinates me to think, I've, I've thought this for years, you know, what, what happened after the apostles? Like, how did everything go down? We, 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 don't, we, we wonder, what's that period like as soon as the last apostle dies? After uh, John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation is written. And John dies, the last apostle to die. What happens as they go into the second century? A fascinating period of church history. Well, right in the middle of that second century, you get Justin Martyr, who wrote this. On finishing the prayers, we greet each other with a kiss. And so that practice had stayed in the church up until that point. Such expressions were common in the ancient world, but especially among the Jews, kissing on the forehead and the cheek, it was a symbol of family bond. Let me just say, this reminds us of something very important. Christians are family. Really? 
Oh, yeah, that's nice. That's just so sweet. That sounds really nice. But then we walk away and we just forget about it. No, it's real. It's real. It's true. It's true. Not in a way that overturns our earthly families, our, our, our physical families, our families that we are a part of, whether believers or not, but in a way that, that adds to that and adds to that eternally. That we, ha- we are part of a family. When we relate to each other, when we talk about each other behind a backs, when we think ill thoughts of one another, we're doing that to sisters and brothers. We're family. How we express, how we express this, this love will differ from culture to culture but we don't get to merely leave it in our hearts. That's what I want you to get from this kiss of peace, this kiss of love, this holy kiss. Is I'm not saying that we gotta start doing uh, the kiss in our corporate worship service or anything like that. But what we do need to extract from this by way of implication is this. We don't get to, as Christians, just keep love down in our hearts. It's not a warm and fuzzy thing we feel and we think about it in the abstract. There are physical, real bodily ways that we express our love for one another. And if not kisses, then other things. But it's physical. It's, it's concrete. People can feel it. People can know it. They can sense it. They can see it. It needs to show up on the outside and not just be tucked away in your heart. Paul concludes his greetings with these words. All the churches of Christ greet you. Here he brings the universal church of Christ together. It's amazing language. You know, we skip over this stuff, but all the churches that Paul has been ministering to in the East are brought into view. Reminding the Romans that they too are part of this larger mission, this larger family. Paul's gathering up big, wide open arms and he's, he's gathering up all the believers in the Mediterranean world into one solidarity. Just as the churches in the east have supported Paul, back to the mission, so too should the Romans. And Paul has representatives from the churches with him who are literally sending their greetings. You imagine believers as he's writing in Corinth, he's writing Romans and there's believers there who are gonna go with him to Jerusalem who are gonna go out with him and they're saying, hey, greet them for me. Tell tell them I said hello in the Lord, right? Greetings literally coming from these brothers and sisters. This is a little tiny picture of that one great gathering in heaven around the throne of God. These verses we just skip over. It's a little picture, a little anticipator of what we're going to have gathered as one church, one bride of Christ forever. But also, notice this. Paul refers to them as the churches of Christ. The churches of Christ. Now, I need to say this clearly. We don't just get to belong to the church of Christ. We don't just get to belong to the church of Christ. We're not saved and introduced into the Christian life to simply belong to the church of Christ. We need to belong to one of the churches of Christ. Not just a a general, vague, parachurch, universal thing. What does that even look like? What does that even look like? There are churches of Christ. Four Corners Church is one of them. Other churches that we closely align with, like Faith Bible or East Point Church, other churches, they are individual expressions of Christ's kingdom on earth. They are churches. We are a church. Don't just belong to the universal church. I'm gonna say it again as I did last week. If you've been attending for a long time, let me give you a a good healthy nudge. At the very beginning of this passage, we saw Phoebe. She's part of the church at Kinkrei. Not just the big thing, but the little C. And then at the end of this passage, we see the very same thing. Multiple assemblies, multiple gatherings, multiple local churches. So let me just encourage you, if you've been attending for a while, please consider joining a church. And if it's this one, join this one. But if it's not, join a church. Come up under the authority and leadership of its elders. Commit yourself to that people of God. 
partner with them in the spread of Christ's gospel. Be on mission with them, as Paul is calling these believers all over to be on mission with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning. Thank you for these truths that we get out of a list of names. We pray that you would help us, above all, to know and to live the truth that Jesus Christ is our one great unifier. And throughout history and throughout many, many differences, he stands as the one who holds us together as his body. We praise you for him. We praise you for one another. What a joy it is to belong to your church and to belong to this local church and to have brothers and sisters in Christ. We praise you for this gift, Father. And we pray that you would be with us now as we commune together with you as one local church. In Christ's name, amen.